Hi, this is Amanda. And this is Lindsay. We're True Creeps. Where the stories are true. And the creeps are real. We'll cover stories from grotesque gore. To the possibly plausible paranormal. To horrifying history. To tense and terrible true crime. And everything else that goes bump in the night. We want you to join us while we creep. We cover mature topics. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, everybody. Today, we are going to talk about the murder of Julie Povovich. And we had referenced her case in our last episode, Ghostly Vengeance, in connection with a psychic, Christy Robinette. And so originally, when we looked at this, we were like, we can talk about her as well in our Ghostly Vengeance episode. And then Amanda and I fell down a rabbit hole. Lots of rabbit holes. Many rabbit holes. So we thought we'd take you with us this time around. Yeah. And we'll get into it in a little bit. But this one may even have connections to another case that we discussed last year. Yeah. So Julie was just 22 years old when she disappeared and she was a waitress and she sometimes worked as a model. She went missing in like the first few hours of August 12th of 2005. The night before, she went to a party at a friend's house and there were lots of people there. The people whose house it was, it was Nicholas Coleman and his friend Mark. And then she had gone to the party with her friend Tiana Brooks. After the party, Tiana drove Julie and herself to Lido's Lounge on North High Street to celebrate a co-worker's birthday. So Julie and Tiana arrived at the bar between 10.30 and 11. Julie forgot her ID, so Tiana let her borrow her identification card. During the night, Julie and Tiana, they hang out with each other, but they also kind of like pass each other. They're not just with one another because there's lots of other friends there. And so they get separated at one point. Tiana was never supposed to take Julie home. So she wasn't like, where are you? Right. Yeah. Julie was supposed to be taken home by her boyfriend, Justin Rogers, but he never ended up coming to the bar. And he said it was because he had a late night at work. Tiana later said, even if he didn't show up, four of Julie's other girlfriends were there to give her a ride. So we're going to get to a situation where she ends up leaving, right? So that's what we're priming you for. And for it to not be like, why did you leave your friend? It was a big group of them there. Yeah. So Julie was described as very drunk by most of the people who they interviewed. She even fell off the bar at one point while she was dancing. Yeah, she had a good night. She was having fun. So she was last seen between 1 and 1.15 in the morning when Tiana saw her go to the patio to have a cigarette. And then also to note, Tiana was sober because she had to drive home. So she remembers this very clearly. Tiana left between 1.30 and 2 and she didn't see Julie leave with anybody. Before Tiana left, Julie's friends asked Tiana if she had seen her and she said no, but have her call me if you see her because Tiana was leaving. And then later on, when people were talking about rumors of where Julie had went, she basically said, look, if she had left with someone and her friends saw that, they wouldn't have asked me where she was. That would have been very strange. Yeah, for sure. And we're skipping ahead a little bit, but obviously Julie left. We don't know what happened right at this point. And so many rumors came up around this of how did she leave? Who did she leave with? Did she leave with anyone? And according to Tiana, no one saw her leave with anyone, right? Because they would have brought it up, like Lindsay just said. But as we're talking about this case later, we're going to talk about some of the rumors. And I want to say I finally figured out just earlier today where the rumor might have began that she left with someone in a car. I went to the Columbus Police website, and it's columbuspolice.org. And 
I was looking for records, any records around this case, including the suspect we'll talk about later. Couldn't find anything. The only thing I was able to find was the unofficial web report of her missing persons report. And the report was made by her boyfriend. And in the report, they just call him RP. It says that he spoke with missing's friends. So probably the people that were with her that night. And they stated that they saw her get in a car with someone who they thought was RP. RP says he was working. So who said this to him is my question. Like, which friend said this? And then also, big group of friends, like, I know my friends' boyfriends and husbands' cars. You know, like, if I saw them get in a different car, I'd be like, who's that? Exactly. Exactly. I think even intoxicated, I feel like I would. Even, oh, especially intoxicated, I'd be like, who's getting into which cars? Does it make sense? But I think also that just tells me that perhaps it looks similar to her boyfriend's car. Maybe, maybe. So the next day, Tiana finds out that Julie didn't show up for work. So she starts asking around to see if anybody had seen her. And some tell her that she had left with a man and then others say that she left alone. And then she was reported missing the following day. And later when this man is interviewed, he says he left alone. Yes, So interesting. So they file the missing persons report and unfortunately it doesn't go well. Last week we talked about the psychic Christy Robinette and she also helped with this case. Julie asked Robinette to draw a map of where her body would be found, which ended up being near 4940 Smothers Road. According to Christy, Julie pushed her way through the other spirits waiting to speak with her and asked her to draw a map, a map of where her body would later be found. And in early September of 2005, three weeks later after she had disappeared, her remains were found near the Hoover Reservoir. Her remains were found behind a shed surrounded by grass that was eight to 10 feet tall. So hard to find. Their remains were decomposed. Julie's body had been positioned with her arms extended above her head and her legs spread apart. Her denim skirt was on backwards and above her waist and her underwear was torn. The deputy coroner could not determine the exact cause of death, but there was speculation that she had been strangled. The clothing Julie was found wearing was what she had been wearing the night that she had disappeared. The coroner, her name's Dr. Jan Gorniak, ruled that Julie's death was a homicide, but couldn't conclude a cause of death because of how decomposed Julie's remains were. She theorized, though, that it was strangulation because there's no signs of blunt force trauma or injuries to suggest that it might have been a stabbing or anything like that. Dr. Gorniak specified that Julie did not die from her fall from the bar because she would have had a fractured skull. And that is something that I saw online is like, well, maybe she hit her head and passed out somewhere. It's probably not what happened. Yeah, I feel like it's a reasonable concern. And I'm glad that Dr. Gorniak, like when they testified, specifically said, no, it was not this. So during the trial that happened, obviously, later on, it was stipulated that Julie died between August 8th and August 14th of 2005. So a couple weeks after her body was found, Julie's case was discussed on the Abrams report. And there was a soundbite from Detective Mike McCann. And he said, we don't have a true suspect. What we have is a person who was seen talking to her by other people. And you, you know, his description is basically a male in his 20s, dark skin and dark hair. We don't have this person really leaving with her. We don't have anything other than they were talking. Interesting. Okay, tuck that in, tuck that in to your pockets, to your ears, all the things. Mm -hmm. And then also there was a quote from Tiana Brooks, her friend, that was read by the anchor. And the quote they read from her was, As soon as I found out she was missing, I talked to the girls the next day that were there that night, and they said they never saw Julie leave. 
No one I know saw Julie get in a car with anyone. And then another rumor that Tiana discussed in another report was that Julie may have left in a car with someone. But again, according to Tiana, no one saw her leave in that car. So interesting. Yeah. So we keep addressing this rumor, right? And it's because we can't find where this rumor began other than that police report, right? Like who said it? And interestingly, the reports around this case altogether. So any of the police reports, they're not anywhere that we can find. And we'll get to why that's strange. Yeah. The majority of the facts about this case, though, are from the person who was convicted's court documents. So when we have our timeline and we have like, th- like this is what witnesses said. This is what other people who were testifying said. That's straight from court documents. There are parts where we it starts to get murkier as to the veracity <laughs> of the facts, right? Yeah, yeah. But I don't think we're there yet. It's hard because there's no way of us verifying like normal cases. I also think what's hard is that with the exception of Tiana and a person who we're going to talk about in a moment called Justin Webb, most people were drinking heavily. So their memories were a little bit skewed. And then it was just Tiana and Justin who were going to be driving. So they were a little bit more sober. And again, initial reports talked about that she had been seen getting into a car, that she may have been forced into it, and that she may have been going into that car unwillingly. And We don't know how she got from the bar to where she ultimately ended up. Yeah. And I think it's interesting that Tiana, I saw multiple news reports that she mentioned. I don't know where this car came from. So it's it's just interesting that she brings up the car so much. Like, I don't know where it is. But then, yeah. In what we've seen, some of the reports say she got in a car. So it's it's just interesting. So let's talk about the investigation. Detective McCann interviewed Justin Rogers, Julie's boyfriend. And prior to interviewing Justin, McCann knew that Julie and Justin had a volatile relationship. McCann also said that Justin was driving Julie's car when she disappeared. And just to note, too, in the police report that I found, like the missing persons report, Mm -hmm. he also stated that the last time he saw Julie was at their shared apartment Hmm. and she was getting ready to go out with her friends. So it was like she's getting ready to leave. Doesn't see her again after that. And that's the first time and the only time I've heard that they live together. Right. Right. I didn't see that anywhere else other than this one police report. We'll get a little tinfoil hat in a bit. But Amanda brought this up very early on that there's not as many articles as you would think would be around on Julie. So Lila Kimes, one of Julie's friends, also said that she knew Justin was at another bar until it closed at 2.30 a.m. Interesting to me because he said he was working and everyone else said he was working. Yeah. And that's why he didn't come to get his girlfriend who was super drunk and needed someone to take care of her. Yep. Anyway, so several of the people who attended the party or went to the bar said that they saw Julie with a man named Adam Sale, And that was over the course of the evening. So it's Lila who's like, basically, she says that Julie was so drunk that she couldn't walk by herself and that Adam helped her outside. Yeah, but not into a car. She said that she left with him, though. Leaving out of a building, but like, did she watch him get into a car? Mm -mm. She doesn't specify she got in a car with him. Yeah. Like walking out of a building, I would say she left with so-and-so, even though I don't know what happened after that. Yeah. So some said that she and Adam spent the entire night together. So again, differing accounts. Interestingly, Adam's friends say that he wasn't with her at all. Most of her friends vividly remember this shell necklace that he wore. And I bring that up because that'll come back again, too. Yeah. I also do want to point out that we're in the early 2000s. A shell necklace was by no means a unique fashion item. Did you ever have 
a shell necklace, Lindsay. In my I am understanding I am some variation of queer uh, beginnings, I went through the briefest of like butch phases that it did involve polo shirts and shell necklaces. I've seen some interesting photos of you before and now I want to see these ones. These need to resurface. Oh, yeah. No, (laughs) they don't need to resurface. There's only a few of them because it was very short lived. It was not me. I was just like, how do I who am I? And not that person, which is fine. But there were many a queer in the early 2000s who were wearing a polo and like a conch shell necklace. If you know what I'm talking about. It was around. It was the style, one might say. Dresses me out. High school days. Who are you telling (laughs) So the shell necklace will come back. And then Lindsay brought up a polo shirt as well. Hmm. In some of the articles that I'm able to find, and and I'm just going to say it now, a lot of the news articles around this case are archived. So like normally when I start looking at a case, I'll go through the court docs, go through that. But then I'm like, what was the evolution given to the public of this case? Like when it started, what did like the missing persons report in the news look like? What did the suspects look like? Like, what were they telling people? And in this case in particular, I can't find a lot of it. There's only a couple, very few articles that are still around that you can see. And I just thought it was interesting. And we'll get to it in a little bit. Like Lindsay said, the tinfoil hat, because there might actually be something weird about this. But who could really know? Yeah. I mean, it's also we're talking about 2005. In my head, it's not that long ago, Lindsay. In our last episode, Amanda's like, 2000 wasn't that long ago. But also 2005 wasn't that long ago. In my brain, I'm like, it's just. And then I'm like, oh, no, it's 17 years ago. I just graduated high school, Lindsay. Okay. Yeah, that was the year I graduated. (laughs) I was 06. I mean, I've got that one year on you, baby. (laughs) But like, it's so easy for me to be like, that was so recent. Anytime the year begins with a two. Like, fair. If the year begins with a two, it's very recent. I would say too, like, yes, I grew up like with my mom being like Dateline, Lifetime true crime movies. But I would say that like true crime, how it is now how it's pervasive and everywhere didn't really start until like 2010s, I think. Oh, and that that's real recent in your head. <laughs> that's really recent. <laughs> where, you know, where people are like vocal about their love for it. They're like, I like to relax with murder. No, you're right. You're right. Yeah. And the news does cover it quite a bit more. Like we see that with like the Vallow case. Even when there's nothing real happening, they're going to have a news report on it. Yes. Yes, they are. Especially, yeah, here in Idaho. So police had two of her friends, Lila Kimes and Justin Webb, look at a photo array to show the person who Julie may have left with. Lila testified that she saw Julie leave with Adam and that she kind of slouched over his arm because, remember, she was drunk. It was hard to walk. So she may have been like holding on to him. They interviewed them separately. Lila took 20 minutes to identify Adam while Webb wasn't able to make an identification. I can see that and then I can't, you know, like when I'm with friends, I'm like, what is she doing? What's she doing? What's she doing? And then like the guy friends are normally just doing their own thing. (laughs) Yes, exactly. I mean, don't we know it? We're there and we're present and the men we're with are just living their lives, just letting whatever at the bar happen. Just the briefest of tangents, because now we must tell you. Yeah. So when Lindsay visited, we were out late. We were like party people for one night. We were. That was who I was for one night and one night only. Yeah. But we we like closed down bars. Like we are intense people now. We did. 
we're hip. But anyways, while we were there, we were standing and this interesting person that we in our heads have named Milo. Yes, because he didn't tell us his name. He's told us so many things, but not his name. Yeah, things that we didn't want to know. Meanwhile, though, our husbands and our friends are sitting at a bench acting like they don't even know us when we're like looking at them like, this guy's weird. Yeah. And they're just like, have fun. (laughs) (laughs) And I just I just need you to know that this was like a 40 minute conversation Uh where we learned very intimate details about his sex life with no prompting from us. And it was an interesting conversation. Mm-hmm. The phrase baby birding vodka into her mouth was used. It was a very strange conversation and we weren't drunk enough for it. No, but we did make it stranger. We wanted to elaborate on the weird stuff. <laughs> well, yeah, because when you say that you baby bird vodka into someone's mouth, I am immediately grossed out because the vodka's warm. So we had to figure out what the cooling system in this person's mouth was. And so we're like, did they have an ice cube in their cheek? Did they have crushed ice? We had a lot of questions. He didn't want us to be asking those questions. I think he wanted us to be more impressed with what he was saying. And go with him. And baby bird vodka into each other's mouth. Oh, what a time. Anyway, though, but this makes sense, though, to me that Lila might have seen her leave while Webb was like doing his own thing, because in that moment, we're literally feet away from our friends and they have no idea what's happening. Oh, yeah. And like, by the way, I was telling this story to someone. I cannot remember who. And my husband forgot what he looked like. So my husband was like close enough to be able to see him and did not describe him in the same way that I did, which I thought was interesting. But in this particular circumstance, when I first read it, I was like, 20 minutes seems like a long time to ID someone. But she even said she was like, I want to be sure that I'm identifying the right person. That makes sense. So it wasn't like she was like flipping through like, oh, this one, I guess. She was like, I want to be sure that I'm saying the right person, which I think is admirable. Yeah. Yeah. And then on August 25th, 2005, Detective Patrick Dorn with the Columbus police interviewed Adam. And during the interview, he said that he had spent most of the time at Lido's with Julie and that she was intoxicated. Adam said that she fell off the bar and complained that her face hurt. Fair. Again, fair, fair. Adam said that he left the bar between 1 and 2 a.m. to help his mom close the carryout store that she ran, which was also nearby. Yeah, and we'll talk about that in a minute, too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And during the interview, Adam was wearing his shell necklace and noted that he always wore it. Hmm. But like Lindsay said, everyone was wearing it at that time. Yeah. And I feel like when you have a piece of jewelry that's just like what you wear every day, it's just part of your routine to put it on. So I don't find that like it's an interesting note, but it's more interesting if you don't know that that's literally what was in fashion right then. Exactly. Exactly. According to Detective Dorn, Adam agreed to an oral swab for DNA, fingerprints, and to leave his car a Crown Victoria. So like he seemed like he's like, I'm an open book. Mm hmm do whatever you want. And I mean, I see it from both sides. Like, let's say, yes, he did it. Then he's trying to be like, no, I'm cool. I'm collected. Everything's fine. And then if he didn't do it, it could be a little like, hmm, what are you hiding? So either way, he kind of loses. Yeah, I feel like there's no winning here. But I will say that they didn't find anything, right? So like, regardless, this vehicle did not have evidence 
Right, right. A search warrant was also executed of Adam's home, and no evidence was found in either place. After Julie's body was found, police researched Adam's car, and again, nothing was found. Hmm. So Adam worked as an auto mechanic, and we're going to talk about his version of the events of what happened that night and what happened in the days after. So Adam also attended the party at Nicholas and Mark's and then went to Lido's, even though he was under 21. Interesting. Yeah. And then in the days after when Tiana was asking around about who saw Julie, Adam was one of the people that Tiana had asked. And he told Tiana that he had left earlier than her to take a friend home. But when he got back to Lido's, everyone was gone. And that's really strange because that is the only account I see of that particular chain of events. I don't see it from Adam's account. Like, otherwise, we don't see it from his mother's account of what happened that night. So that's a very strange situation to me. So Adam said he only drove his Crown Victoria in August of 2005. And we'll talk about why that's important in a little bit. Adam said that he only had about a foot and a half of accessible space in his trunk because of his speakers. Not a lot of room. Okay. It's not a lot of room. And Adam also denied having anything to do with Julie's disappearance. So that specific night, Adam said that he arrived at Nicholas and Mark's house party around 9 p.m. and then went to Lido's between 10.30 and 11 p.m. And he said he stopped at his mom's work on the way to get his ID and bank cards, which seems strange to me that she would be holding them. I'm guessing like maybe he forgot him at home and he's like, hey, can you just bring him with you? Yeah. And from what I understand, like they live very close to where she worked. So perhaps she like grabbed him on the way out. So Adam drank at Lido's and he said he spent most of his time with Nicholas, Mark, Christopher and Ryan Flannery. Interesting. So Adam said that he danced with a woman he was dating at that time and her name was Chloe Fritchen. He said that he did not dance with or have anything more than a passing interaction with Julie, which is interesting because at other points he says that he did spend time with her. Adam said he left around 1 a.m. and that he left the bar with a few friends. He then went to his mother's work, I think to pick her up and like take her home. And she was very mad because she could smell that he had been drinking. So she took the car keys from him, parked the car across the street and was like, well, we're just going to walk home. So she went to a pizza place that was right next to where they were. It was from a person named Benny's shop. And they got a pizza from there and she sent him on his way. And he went home. He said that he took the pizza home, vomited and went to bed around 2.30 in the morning. And then we'll also see it in phone records that we'll talk about in a bit. But his mother called him twice to see if he she wanted him to bring her something home because she didn't come home with him. For her to bring him something home. Even though he just got a full pizza? Yeah. Which is really weird. Yeah. But also like the way that I understood it, she was calling him like hours later and I don't think she was coming home right then. So I don't know if it was something for him to eat later. But didn't he, I mean, in earlier interviews with police, didn't he mention like, oh, I went to my mom's to help her close down like Mm -hmm. in my head to help her come home. So it seems like his story did vary a little bit between people. I agree. So eventually Adam is arrested and he's charged in connection with Julie's murder. While he's behind bars, he talks to people, supposedly. The prosecution relied on the testimony of jailhouse informants to tie Adam to Julie's murder because of his sketch behavior. It was very sketchy. Sketch as fuck, would you say? Oh, it was sketch as fuck. I'm reading through and I'm like, you're either the dumbest person alive or the prosecution is offering very good incentives for people to lie. Right. 
So we're not going to go through all of them. But in addition to what we are going to discuss in a moment, Adam also tried to get other inmates to help him come up with a false alibi for the night of the murder. Additionally, informants testified that Adam said that he was driving a different car than the one that was searched. So we brought up that he mentioned he only drove the Crown Victoria, but then he's telling other people he drove something different. Yeah, I mean, and that would explain why they didn't find anything and why he was so cool and collected, right? Yeah, he's like, yeah, search it. Do what you do. My speakers are in there. So we're going to talk about Brian Banks and he's Adam's cellmate. Brian said that Adam told him that Adam took Julie to his car the Crown Victoria. And when she denied his sexual advances, he choked her in an attempt to make her pass out. Adam told him that he pressed too hard and killed her before putting her in the car trunk and going home. And see, this is where it's like that speaker part comes into play. Yeah. So already this doesn't make a lot of sense. If his trunk was full of speakers, I don't think she would have fit. Adam dumped Julie's body into the water so it would decompose and that there would be no evidence. Adam cleaned his trunk after this. So apparently police also had put a GPS in his car at one point and Adam told his cellmate that he removed the GPS. Now, I had a few questions around this because I wasn't quite sure when this GPS even became a thing. Was it while he was already a suspect and they were trying to figure it out? Or was it because of something that he had done prior? I can't find any reports on Columbus Police's website uh, in regards to this other thing that I was able to find in some comments, but supposedly he might have been involved in an alleged rape in May of 2005. But I can't find really anything surrounding it other than he wasn't convicted for it. What's interesting is we talked earlier about how it's hard to find sources that are, I don't want to say reputable, but are from mainstream news sources. Because like one is like a WordPress site or a Spokio site or newspapers I've never heard of. And so we are inherently a little bit more inquisitive about how true those things are. Yeah. And so you can find some information But whether it's true or not, we don't really know. And yeah, like some sources say that the reason why Adam was in jail to begin with was because of this rape, not because of being charged with Julia's murder. So it's kind of murky as to like the timeline there of like which he was arrested for first. Yeah. And again, it's because the government websites aren't showing the records like they normally do. And we'll talk about it. So we'll move on a little bit. Brian and the prosecution did have a bargain for the exchange testimony, which I found really interesting because Brian then benefited from saying all of this, right? Yes. So one of the key pieces of evidence, because there's not a lot other than jailhouse testimony and what I'm about to talk about, and it's Adam's phone records from that night. So the prosecution during the the trial had T-Mobile's record custodian and the engineer who specifically worked on the cell towers where Adam's phone was pinging off of. So interesting. I've just never heard of like that being like who they sent out, but they were both from T-Mobile. And so they talked about Adam's cell phone activity on August 12th of 2005. And again, the cell phone tower engineer had designed, but he also worked to maintain the cell phone towers. So I feel like I would trust him as a reputable source. So we're going to talk about the calls that he had early that morning. So at 2.26 a.m., for about a minute, Adam checked his voicemail and the cell phone tower that it pinged off of was, was near a high school on a Route 161 West. 
Then at 3.42 in the morning, for almost three minutes, Adam received a call from his mother and this pinged off at the cell phone tower at 901 Sunbury Road. And this is one of the ones where it's actually very, very important. And that's because that is very close to where Julie's body was found. Right. And he should have been at home in bed, according to him. Yes. Yes. He should have been home. Like he should have like just thrown up and been sleeping. Right. Because at 2.30, he says he's, he's asleep by then. And at 2.26, he's checking his voicemail. Right. Like literally while he's throwing up. Yeah. Well, I could see like if you're laying in bed trying to fall asleep, you like fiddle with your phone. Sure. But the 342 one is like, well, why weren't you at home when you said that you went to bed? Exactly. So then at 358 for almost a minute, Adam received another call from his mother. And this cell phone tower that he pinged off of was right near his apartment near Ohio State University. And just as a recap, those last two calls from his mom were from her asking if he wanted a sandwich. So interesting. Why twice? So for the cell phone tower expert, his name is Nadir Al-Fadadi, by the way. And Nadir believes that Adam wasn't near the Ohio State campus for the 226 voicemail check and the 342 a.m. call because the cell phone towers register calls that are between 1.5 and 2 miles away. And the reason why I say that is because one of the things the defense tried to say was that, oh, the Ohio State, you know, cell phone towers were super busy because it was a Saturday night. So he pinged somewhere else. And the engineer was like, no, that's not a thing, which it it sounds like a reasonable thing to have happened. Yeah. If you don't know cell phone towers, but if those are like your babies, you're like, that's not how this works. And so the defense had cell phone expert Ben Leviton, and he suggested that the Sunbury cell tower didn't even exist on August 12th. But the tower engineer confirmed it did exist. And then he also said that there was a different cell phone tower that would have pinged off of if he was near where Julie was found. But then he also said, oh, I'm not very familiar with Columbus. Okay. Why are you here? (laughs) Yeah. And then there was like problems because he was not submitting his like expert reports in the same timelines to both the defense and the prosecution. And that's a (laughs) no-no. So he's like, you can see it first. You'll have more time with this report, basically. Yeah. And also one of the things that Officer McCann did was he drove the route from Lido's to the site where Julie's body was found. And so he used side streets and observed the speed limit. And it was just after midnight and when he did this. And he said it was 28 miles and it took 33 minutes. So on the way back, they used a mixture of freeways and side streets streets to get to his apartment Uh and they said observing the speed limit it took 22 minutes so looking at our timeline here yeah that's interesting because what i just did too when you were saying the addresses so between the um 342 call and the 358 call Mm -hmm. it's exactly 22 minutes at this moment for the fastest route that's funny yeah and there could have been new roads built there could be new red lights there could be a whole bunch of whole differences then right yeah but i mean to this moment from then to right this moment 22 minutes is it 22 minutes yeah so that looks possible to me then well it could be but like between the times and remember the cell towers you don't have to be like at the cell tower either it said it's like within a couple miles right yeah two miles max Yeah. So what? That's 16 minutes between those calls. Could he have gotten the 22 minutes? I mean, you're telling me you've never cut five minutes off of your route, Amanda? You little speed demon? Not when I don't want to be suspicious. Yeah, but I do not. Okay, hear me out. We're talking side streets late at night. There's no traffic. 
update your directions to see what happens if you leave at one in the morning. And yeah, I was just going off of these addresses because like, how did he ping back and forth? If it takes 22 minutes, how did he get it within 16? You know, like, could he have gotten from his apartment to where she was dumped in that time frame? Okay, so per ways, it looks like it take 19 minutes to get there. Which would make sense between, and, and we're just going off of the cell phone pings and the addresses that they ping to. Yeah. That's 16 minutes between. So he could have been driving around in the middle of the night. Yeah. So, I mean, I feel like someone, when you get into cell phone records, it gets kind of like, oof, your eyes glass over. But these are, I think, a little bit more interesting because it's like he was clearly up and around, which is not what he said he was doing. Right. And the fact that he was up and around near where her body was found is suspicious. Yeah. And I know his mom said that he had made it home, right? When we look at that time, that's the difference between 2 a.m. and the 226 ping. And we'll get to why in a minute, like how we're getting that 2 a.m. start number. Yeah. Yeah. So it makes sense that maybe he did drive around in the middle of the night for suspicious reasons. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about his trial. So during his trial, he pled not guilty. Adam denied ever talking to any jail informants, which I mean, that's the only part that I'm like, okay, that that's a little suspicious. Like, that's weird that that's like the only thing they had him on. Yeah. I mean, the other part of it is that he like wrote notes to these jail informants and that a handwriting analysis was done on the notes and they proved it was his handwriting. Yeah. But like they still had something to gain, though. They still had something to gain. But my thing is that, like, he's under 21. I just can't get on board with him being this good at hiding a murder. Fair. So during his trial, the prosecution asked why he checked his voicemail if he was in the middle of getting sick. And he had no answer for that. And on this, I'll side with him a little bit because I look at all kinds of stuff on my phone when I'm laying in bed or if I don't feel good or hell, when I was like pregnant and throwing up all the time, I'd like sitting there with my phone and like, oh, I have a voicemail. Oh, I have this. Like anything to keep your mind off of feeling shitty. Yeah. But also, though, imagine this scene. You are drunk enough to be vomiting. Are you going to be like, let me check? I mean, like, I'm very bad about checking my voicemail on like a good day like real quick let's see how many unlistened to voicemails i have this stresses me out Lindsay. it's gonna hurt 262 what's wrong with you i can't have notifications if there's a notification i will freak out like i have to have every notification gone i want to be that way but i also hate listening to voicemails and now my phone gives me the option to read the voicemail which means I'm not, like, not listening to it. And it's all scam calls anyway. Oh, okay. You know, I'm saying that and there's like one, two, three, four, five from my parents' house. Because my mom's like, Lindsay, call me back. And I'm like, don't do this to me. Text me. Yeah, I have one from Ben. Yeah, uh, you know. Well, there are a lot of different people in this world, Lindsay. <laughs> I'm not checking my voicemails when I'm sober. So he's like vomiting and dying. He's like, wait a minute, someone called me. No, he's like, I need to clear these notifications. That's me. That's me. (laughs) I can't do notifications. Off topic, but on Mike's Call of Duty game, Mm -hmm. there's a notification for a free bundle. Anyone that plays Call of Duty will know this. And his won't go away. And even me just like looking over at his computer, I'm like, that notification is there. You need to get rid of it. Just get the free bundle. And he's like, I can't. There is no bundle. It's a glitch. And I'm like, delete the game and start over. Like, I can't. I can't buy the bundle then. I don't give a fuck. I can't have this notification on your computer. (laughs) (laughs) But also he comes over to your computer and judges the amount of tabs that you have open. So marriage. (laughs) We'll never close my tabs. Never. 
I have like four episodes of tabs up right now. That's what we do. Anyway, so let's talk about Julie's phone records. Police also obtained cell phone records of James Clayton, and he was friends with Julie, and her phone was on his account. Interesting. Police never recovered Julie's cell phone, which I thought was kind of strange, too. Yeah. So in Adam's trial, defense counsel suggested that Julie made 20 calls in the afternoon and evening of August 12th. So let's go back. The night of the party was August 11th. And then when she disappeared, it would have been the super early hours of August 12th. So it being the afternoon of August 12th is very strange. Yes. So defense counsel showed McCann the records, but the court ruled that because they were not authenticated by T-Mobile's custodian, they couldn't be included. And I don't know why they didn't freak out about like, okay, if, if there was 20 calls in the afternoon after she was already gone, in my head, I'm like, explore that, right? Get T-Mobile to look into that, authenticate the hell out of it, figure out where she was, where was that pinging? Because if she didn't die that night, we know that there's like a time frame of where she may have died. Like, where was she being held? Where were all of these parties while she was being held if she was? Well, and I think that is what's very difficult about court proceedings. I think those are all good questions. However, because you have to like pass certain evidentiary like do that before you want to make sure that things are accurate and truly from where they say they are. So I don't think it was a matter of not caring. I think that it was a mixture of not running down that lead. Yeah. Beforehand. And it not being admissible because the defense counsel didn't do what they should have. Right. And I feel like that should have been done prior when they saw that. Absolutely. And been like, what the hell is this? Mm -hmm. But you're right. Like all the pre-work has to be done before it could be like discussed and talked about and all of that. But it's like, why wasn't that pre-work done? Because the second I read that, I'm like, what are this? Like, tell me every single thing that can come of this. And it pisses me off that that wasn't the first thing that came through their head, too. Because let's say she was held, right? Then why didn't you look at all the other parties involved cell phone records? Were they near that area? Were they not? Because maybe there were more involved. Maybe it was just Adam. We don't know. But what if it wasn't? You know, like there's so many questions that come up and this could have answered that. Exactly. Anytime there's a big question mark like this that goes unanswered, it makes me a little bit more suspicious of how they got to their suspect. Yeah. Because I don't know whether Adam had anything to do with it or not. Yeah. I just don't think that the evidence they used proved it. It's not good enough. Yeah. I don't think it passed the muster of beyond a reasonable doubt. Exactly. Me too. McCann said that the last call from her was at 1 a.m. on the 12th. And that would make sense, right? Because that's about when she said she was going to go and smoke around 1 to 1.15-ish. Yeah. So having a cigarette, calling someone, maybe calling her boyfriend going, are you coming? Yeah. I mean, that sounds like a very like a good time to call. So let's talk about some other witness accounts from that weekend. The Sunday after Julie's disappearance, Tiana saw Julie's boyfriend, Justin, and he had a bandage on his hand. And when she asked him about it, he told her that he had hit a wall, which like whenever I see that, I'm like, ugh, literally, why? That's gross, toxic behavior that just gross. The fact that he was like, that was what he told her. I'm like, you should be ashamed of that. Also, like, what wall? Did you hit like a brick wall? Because I've seen people flip out for stupid reasons and hit a wall and their hand was fine. Like, especially like, yeah, an interior wall. Yeah, yeah. Also, Adam's mother, Fadia Khatib, worked at R1 Carryout. And we had mentioned that earlier, right? 
She said that she called her son's cell around one in the morning, but he didn't answer. And this is when he was like getting ready to leave the bar, right? So he leaves and then he just comes to where she works. She goes to get in the car with him and she smells alcohol in his breath. She's pissed. So she took the keys from him and, and he told him to walk home, which was just a block from where they were. She got home around two in the morning and saw that Adam had thrown up. She then went to a coffee shop that she frequented after work. It sounds like she had like... Because she worked late, she probably had a reverse kind of schedule. Yeah. And so while she was there, she called him twice, like we mentioned earlier, to see if he wanted a sandwich. She then said when she got home at 4 a.m., she saw Adam in his room sleeping, which, okay, I think our cell phone times match up there. Yeah. But he wouldn't have been long. He wouldn't have been home for long because that's 42 minutes. That's 18 minutes between when his phone pinged near Julie's body versus when she got home. Right. Yeah. He may have come home at two and then left for a while and came back and like coincidentally made it home before she did, not knowing when she'd be home. Yeah. And also like, is it possible that the car had been moved and that she didn't notice? Maybe. But also, would he throw her in like the back seat if she wouldn't fit in that trunk? Yeah. I guess I haven't seen like that the speakers really did take up that much room, but I have seen people with speakers that do. I guess my thing is like if he had things in the back seat and she was covered up, his mom wouldn't necessarily know, right? That's true. But so the other interesting thing about Adam's mom is that her story changed between the time when she spoke with investigators, that it changed again when she spoke to the grand jury, and then it changed again when she eventually testified during his trial. So she ultimately doesn't seem like a reliable witness because her story keeps changing. Right. So another person, Bruce Bennis, he's the owner of the pizza shop next to R1. He said that he last saw Adam when his mom brought him pizza around 2 or 2.30 a.m., which this throws off the timeline all over again, right? Yeah. Because wasn't he at home at that time? Todd Smith, a private investigator for the defense, he drove the route between where Adam's cell phone pinged and where Julie's body was found and found that it was impossible to travel the distance in these time frames. Hmm. It's all so incongruent, right? Like, it's never just one one thing. Yeah, exactly. Around August 15th or the 16th, Tiana's ID was found near a guardrail by some rocks on the east side of the bridge on Smothers Road. The person who found it was the girlfriend of Brian Hannah, and she mailed it to Brooks. And the reason we bring up the ID is because when they went to the bar that night, supposedly Julie didn't have her ID, so she used Tiana's. So it sounds like they were like switching IDs back and forth, and then Julie probably had it last. Yeah. So that night, somehow it got moved from the bar and from where her body would end up being to this bridge. Bizarre. Interesting. So let's talk about the trial outcome. Adam was convicted of aggravated murder based on kidnapping, aggravated murder based on rape, aggravated murder based on prior calculation and design, kidnapping, attempted rape, and tampering with evidence. A lot of charges there. Yes. Adam was sentenced to 38 years to life in prison in 2007. And then in 2009, he exhausted his last appeal. So... What I find really difficult here is that when looking at the evidence, I don't see anything based like where it shows that it was premeditated, like prior calculation and design. Yeah. So I don't understand that in particular. Yeah. One. But interesting. Interesting. For folks who haven't heard of the Innocence Project, one of the things that they do is that they will review inmates' files who have been convicted of murder. And they might look at other charges, too. I'm not 100% sure. And they'll see if there was kind of anything that looked like it got messed up. And they'll try to advocate for the inmate based on what they find. Yeah. And they've done a lot of good, too. They've done amazing things. 
because, and we've talked about it before, we're, we're innocent until proven guilty. But what if the system's broken? Sometimes it's broken. So interestingly, in Ohio, the relevant precedent for obtaining the police file, basically, on their investigation stated that the records could only be released via court discovery and that they couldn't be requested through a public information request and that they could only be obtained via public information request when the person who was at the heart of the investigation or who was convicted is either freed or dead. And so what a public records request is, is basically like you're going to ask the government to give you records. Some governments are more just transparent in how they proceed than others. For example, Florida has sunshine law. So there's a lot of public records that are free and very easy to get to. Not all states have that. So here, the relevant precedent was basically court discovery, free or dead. Those are the ways that you're going to be able to get records in the police investigation. So because Adam had exhausted all of his appeals, he could not request the police investigation reports through discovery because he had no case for there to be discovery in. So the Ohio Innocent Project sued police chief Kim Jacobs and the Ohio Supreme Court over the police chief's division's refusal to release investigative reports in the murder case. And again, this is because all of Adam's appeals have been exhausted. And we're not going to get into like all of the weeds into this, but they were successful. The Ohio Innocence Project was successful. And now as soon as a criminal case is done, as soon as the trial is over, the public can go ahead and seek the records from law enforcement as of December of 2016. Now, what's interesting (laughs) is two things. Adam's case was a perfect example of why that mechanism needed to be fixed, because it's completely possible that something strange happened in the police records. And by reviewing them, they could have set an innocent man free. So one, there's that. And two, when you're changing case precedent, there's two ways you can change it. One, there can be a new law that's passed or two, they can make new precedent. And the only way to make new precedent is with a new case. And so Adam's case was perfect for this. So that's like our number one. Our number two is we haven't found anywhere that says anything about the records being released or whether anything was found or anything like that, which I thought was fascinating because you would have expected after, you know, they have a big case that's publicized that what comes next is some mention. But I don't even think I saw one mention of the Ohio Innocence Project reviewing his case file. No, and that's what makes me upset is like these records. Let's say he is guilty. Sure. I want to see the records. I want to see what makes him guilty and like how did this all come about? Because even as Lindsay said, like we can't even find why he was arrested in the first place. Was it in regards to this or the possible rape before it? Exactly. And it's frustrating that nothing tangible can be seen on a government website. There's lots of speculation, but not in actual filings. Yeah. So now let's get ready for some conspiracies because this one, let's get a little weird. This one really (laughs) made me go down a lot of rabbit holes. And I looked at the clock at one point. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's 3 a.m. I need to get up in a few hours. I need to stop. But I didn't want to. Like, I wanted to keep going. Yeah, it's it's certainly an interesting one. Yeah. Many people believe that Adam is innocent. And part of the reason is there's no physical evidence to link him to the murder. So there's no DNA evidence. Normally, we could be like, okay, his DNA is on her or like her hair is on him or something. There's some sort of DNA exchange, right? Like there's a DNA exchange most of the time. And also, so often we're talking about older cases where like, of course, they didn't test it because it wasn't around. But here, DNA testing was around and available. And what are the odds that not a single hair of hers 
was left in his car or not a single one of his hairs touched her or a fiber of clothing like nothing. Right. Like we talked about in one of our episodes, someone dancing with someone and exchanging hairs. Oh, yeah. That was for our crime fighting critters because they were exchanging animal hair. Yeah. So like if they had come in contact, even at the bar, let's say he didn't do it. There should have been some sort of DNA if he admitted to like coming in contact with her. I don't know. That that just bothers me. Yeah. So the reason he was convicted is most of the witness statements with confession were jailhouse informants. And it's like they had something to gain from it. So I don't think that that's enough in my eyes, at least. People believe that there's actually a serial killer that's been on the loose because this was done wrong. Many believe, and here's where I'm like, this is my rabbit hole here. So many believe that Brian Schaefer, Mohammed Riani, Tony Luzio, and Joey Labute are all linked to Julie. And remember, we did an entire episode on Brian Schaefer last year. And just to note, this happened, her disappearance happened only about a mile and a half away from where Brian disappeared. So he disappeared a little bit after on March 31st of 2006. Not long. And I went through Google Maps and like essentially walked from bar to bar. I'm like, oh, wow, this isn't that far. Yeah. (laughs) So we haven't talked about Muhammad before, but just to give you some details, quick details. He disappeared on November 3rd of 2005 from the same area. His story differs a bit. He was missing for three years. And then his car and body were found in the Hoover Reservoir in 2008. It was ruled a suicide, but his body was found close to where Julie's is. And a lot of people don't think it actually was a suicide. They think it was just to close the case. And then another one is Tony Luzio. And he disappeared from Powell, Ohio on the 4th of July in 2005. His car was eventually found nine years later in seven to nine feet of water. I've seen varying accounts. Witnesses that live nearby where the car was found said they also lived there when he had disappeared and they never heard or saw a thing. And they were pretty close to where his car would have been found. So I feel like if someone crashed a car into a body of water, you would have heard something. We have a small lake behind my house and I know when people are over there. I know when the coyotes are over there. Like you can hear things. So scary. So scary. Oh yeah. Lindsay's heard them. I was like, what the (laughs) fuck is that? Like the coyotes are getting a drink. But I feel like these people would have heard a car go into it, right? Yes. They also said that when he disappeared, they never saw any tire tracks in the grass around the pond. And it's frequently fished in and walked around by kids in the area. So like if something would have happened, they would have noticed, hey, there's there's tire marks. And they probably would have told an adult. When his body was found, they had been getting assistance to search the bodies of water in the area for him. And then they expanded the area and were able to find him. So that's another one where it's like, huh, he was missing for a long time. And it's just super similar to what happened to Muhammad. And a lot of people actually think that maybe Brian, too. If you looked in all of the bodies of water, that maybe his body would be found the same way. Super interesting. And so the the last possible connected victim was Joey Labute. And he was a kind and funny 26-year-old and all of his friends talked about him being like very funny and sweet and witty. And he went missing on March 5th of 2016 from Union Cafe. And he was hanging out with his friends Stacy and Kyle that night, but they lost track of him. Stacy wasn't feeling well and she wanted to leave. So both she and Kyle texted Joey trying to find him because they were going to leave and they couldn't get a hold of him. And then no one had seen him after that night. Surveillance footage shows Joey leaving the bathroom and then that's the last time he's seen. His phone was active for two hours after he left Union Cafe and his car was found near an apartment complex where he used to live. 
Later that month, on March 29th, he was found in the Scioto River. And dental records from the remains matched Joey. And so that's how they knew it was him. And per the coroner, there weren't any outward indications of trauma. And the toxicology report didn't show that he had any controlled substances in his system. But interestingly, his lungs weren't filled with water. So investigators were thinking he was dead before he was put into the river. Just as a note, folks think that there's more, right? Because like we're seeing a pattern here. And on NamUs, we know I love to look at NamUs, love to hate to look on there, but there's three other sets of remains in Columbus that were found near rivers and lakes. One person was partially decomposed. There was another person where it was like a full skeleton and then another person where it was like just a a partial skeletal remain. And we talked about this with Brian Schaefer. But just as a reminder, one of the theories of who is killing, it wouldn't be Julie, but these young men would be that the quote unquote smiley face killer who theoretically hunts drunk male college students and kills them and dumps their bodies near bodies of water. And it's still like a controversial theory on whether this killer actually exists, because it's not altogether strange to think that if you're drunk, you could accidentally fall into a body of water and die. So it's a little bit contested, but it's an interesting thing to see continue to happen over and over and over. Yeah. And I even saw some cases in Pittsburgh. So like that seemed similar to these that were heading west. And yeah, and like we mentioned, when they found her body, Julie's, in September, her remains were near the Hoover Reservoir. Yeah, yeah. And also, just as a note, too, Joey and Brian Schaefer look very similar, like short brown hair, dazzling smile. Like you see him with like a crisp collared shirt. Yeah. They look very, to me, they look very similar. It's true. So many believe Adam was wrongfully convicted and that allowed for the real killer to continue taking more lives. They believe that it was fake testimony from inmates and a fake or planted cell phone data. I don't know how one would do that, especially like with T-Mobile. But also, like, if they really just wanted to close the case and they're like, this is our guy, things could be arranged, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't know whether it's arranged, but I could certainly see, like, it's Detective McCann who did that drive and said it's possible. Yeah. He could say it's possible. If he testified it's possible, that's what's in there. Well, I would like to see, too, and and this is just my pure speculation. It's nothing I've read, nothing I've seen. I wonder if there's any sort of connection between the people that represented T-Mobile and anyone on the police force at that time. Hmm. That'd be interesting. You know, so-and-so's friend, so-and-so's brother's husband. You know, like something. Yeah. Something. I wonder if there's a connection. Well, and also, if you are the people who testify on behalf of T-Mobile in court cases, I would imagine that this was not the first, nor was it the last time that they had testified. Think about the people that you said, though, the person who serviced those particular ones. Like, how often are they like, oh, another murder happened in your three mile radius? Come on. Like, I actually think the opposite. Like, maybe this is the only time the people who service that particular cell phone tower. Oh, that's true. Well, I'm thinking more. So I'm not thinking so much for the engineer, but for the custodian. Maybe, maybe. But interesting, like that can be faked. Like I at first I'm like, "Mm, maybe not. But like if you knew someone to do a favor for someone, perhaps. I also saw a theory that maybe it was Brian that night that Julie hung out with the night that she had disappeared. That makes my brain hurt. It does. It does. So somewhere along the line, and again, not everything's released. We can't find everything. 
Someone had mentioned that Julie had been hanging out with a guy with dark hair, a shelled necklace, and a blue polo. Now, I mentioned we, we've we looked for news reports even early on in that case because I was like, well, maybe it was in a news report saying like, we need to speak with this person that she could have been talking to, right? We've all seen it in the news before. Like, were you around this bar at this time? Yeah. Do you know anyone that was wearing this? Like, I can't find anything like that, right? One thing, though, that people are discussing is that there might have been three suspects at one point. And it was a guy named Tanner Rogers, Adam, and then Shell Necklace Guy is what he's referred to. People actually wonder how did Adam turn into Shell Necklace Guy? But I think we kind of answer that as like he went to talk to police wearing the Shell Necklace. Now, those videos haven't been released, too. So it's like, that's what they say. I don't know. There's not proof that we can check. But what if it was Brian and not Adam? And if so, could that be why he later disappeared? Maybe he saw something he shouldn't have, right? That's the kind version of why he would disappear after she disappeared. Right, right, right. Like, I'm not going to say it, but if you're picking up what I'm putting down. So a lot of people talk about a psychic, too, that did a reading on Brian. And I found a couple psychics. I don't know if I found the one that people are talking about, but there are some that say that maybe he saw something he wasn't supposed to. And I was watching all of these at like 2 a.m. and I had big chills because I was like, oh my gosh, what if this is connected? And then just another extra little bonus thing. When you Google Brian Schaefer and you just go through images, some of the images come up of him wearing a blue polo shirt with a shell necklace. Yeah, that it gave me the heebie-jeebies when I saw it. Yeah, I sent it to Lindsay right before we start recording. And I'm like, look, it's like it just comes up so easy. I didn't even have to dig. Yeah. So there's a lot of speculation that Adam was framed just to close the case. And then when more disappearances and murders started to happen, the people who framed him just didn't want to get caught. So they planted more quote unquote evidence to keep him behind bars. And I don't like a thousand percent disagree with that. I don't disagree with it but I also I feel like okay very plainly I do not think there was enough to like prove that it was him that I've been able to see but if there were all like all of these other deaths adding more evidence against him and more things that make it look like him doesn't solve those other ones and those other cases have families and loved ones and friends and news reports and all of those things and framing Adam even more doesn't make those go away now like you had said earlier one of those was ruled a suicide and that would be a good example of that but i don't think it doesn't shut everybody up about brian schaefer joey or tony like that they framed him what do you mean law enforcement framing adam even more doesn't draw the family friends and loved ones from the other murders to stop pressing so it just doesn't seem like it's that would be fulfilling a purpose once he's in jail and he's convicted like they're done they don't have to keep layering on but these other deaths are still happening right Right. So I don't think being like, it's really this guy that killed Julie. That's not going to answer the questions that the families of Tony, Joey, Muhammad and Brian are going to have. Well, right. And I think it's more like they might have made a mistake, maybe let's say early on. Right. And they're just like, well, we don't want to fess up to it. Let's just put him away. And then more stuff started happening. And they're just like, well, we don't want this to surface because then if like, I don't know, let's say someone else became a suspect for Julie, then they'd have to kind of show that they were wrong at some point. And I think that that might have been something that someone was afraid to get out. I also saw and I can't find any like tangible proof of it because no article is out there and I can't find anything released by the police. But supposedly Detective McCann retired immediately after this trial. I can't say one way or another. I've looked 
The only thing I can find on him is that he might have died. I don't know. I don't know if that's him. But I can't find his like retirement thing. But that that was also why people say like, this is suspicious. Yeah. Like he got as far away after working, I want to say like 28 or 29 years with the police to nothing to do with them. I got to go. So they're like, what was he hiding? Yeah. I mean, 28 years also seems like a really long time. But one of the things that we found in the course of research is many informal forums, right? Yes. So we've got Reddit. We've got like web sleuth message boards and we've got YouTube video comments. And there is a very interesting user called Queen Bee on YouTube that does not have any videos and there's no ability to message them. Otherwise, I would have been messaging them that has a lot of big theories on this case. And they allege widespread police corruption. They talk about the fact of how they, they really advocate for all of these cases being connected. And I think that their voice is one of the, the first that was getting people to go, hmm, are these connected? Because some of the people who posted on Reddit had been in this comment section for this video about Brian Schaefer. And then they're reading all of these other like cases and theories and ideas. This person claims to have copies of police reports. They claim to have more case details that haven't been released yet. One of the things they also talk about is that they're making a documentary. And the last comment that they had was from two months ago. So people are obviously responding like, well, where is this information? And they're like, you'll see it in my documentary. So there might be something coming out that really talks about this in a very evidence-based way, if you find them credible. Yeah. But one of the things that I found interesting was in one of the statements that they were making, they were talking about the Ohio Innocence Project. And generally, when they talked, they were saying, like, this person did this. They did this. They did this, right? And then when they were talking about the Ohio Innocence Project, they said, we. Okay. Okay. (laughs) And I was like, huh. Huh. That's me like 17 pages deep on a PDF YouTube page because I'm where I'm like, I'm like tinfoil hat, like six cup of coffee, like what's going on. But it's interesting, the conspiracies around this on whether one, Adam is guilty and two, if he's not, what does that mean? Does it mean that there's a serial killer that police are purposely hiding because they want to save face? It wouldn't be the first time that happened. It's not going to be the last. I hate it. But also, like, it's just strange to me. And again, there's three other cases on NamUs of remains being found near water. So it's hard for me to go, no, it's not a problem. I don't really want to get into it. But there's other, like, patterns of heinous crime that are occurring in Columbus. Yeah. That are wild to me. So I don't know what's going on there. But that's what we've got for you this week. As always, we want to know what your thoughts are on this case. As a reminder... It's, well, one, I hope you're recovering from your St. Patrick's Day hangover very well. If you're not and you're going to celebrate this weekend, hydrate, hydrate, hydrate as you go. Know your surroundings. Know who your friends are with if you're going out. Yeah. Keep an eye out on the people who you're with and you care about. All good things. Also, I want to know, what do you think? So obviously we're going to post. Tell us, do you think that Adam is guilty? Do you have questions that came up from this? I want to know because I am not 100% bought in that he's guilty. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes when you read court docs, like I get a little bit like caught up on like the the terrible details and I can lean a little on the prosecutor's side sometimes. And this time I was like, where's the evidence? Yeah. And when you say court docs, you're just saying the trial. This is from the appeal. The police reports. There's not. Yeah. There's not the normal things that we can find. It's just not there. Yeah. It's 
bizarre. And if you're part of our Patreon, we'll talk about this in the Bat Bonfire or uh, our Patreon only Discord as well. But we definitely have we have channels there for our latest episode chat. But, you know, if you're a part of that, you definitely want to chat with us there. And if you want to get in on those conversations, uh, check out our show notes because we have a link to our Patreon and our game night is just two weeks away. We're pretty excited about that. Yep. And also our giveaway is going on. So check that out, too. Oh, yes. On our social media channels. Yeah. Well, with that, have a great weekend. Thanks for creeping with us. Thanks for listening. For more information on our sources, please visit our website, truecreeps.com. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can follow us on Instagram at truecreepspod, on Facebook at facebook.com slash truecreepspod, and on Twitter at truecreeps. We'd love for you to keep creeping with us. So if you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the show with your fellow creeps.